of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 33, October 2020, Voices of Africa. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. First, some good news for listeners in Australia, Canada and the UK. In the last month, the new edition of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen Deluxe Streaming Edition has become available on Amazon in those countries, as well as on Amazon here in the US. So, if you aren't in the US, always check your own country's Amazon first. Your order will arrive quicker, and you'll save hugely on shipping, perhaps paying no shipping at all. This is especially vital now, as COVID-19 has wreaked havoc in international shipping. If you find any of my books temporarily out of stock, please be patient. We regularly restock our Amazon inventory, but with the pandemic, it can be a bit tricky. But as always, don't hesitate to email me at paul at paulmeyer.com for all your product questions. So, on to the show. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. What I would like to do is take the law of it, so I would like to write at some point, um, direct, go on the other side of the camera so I know the whole ins and outs of it as well, so I've got a bit of appreciation for the people that, who are doing those jobs as well. Uh, but ideally, I think it's about taking the idea and making sure the idea is finished at the other end, whether that be that the idea needs to be written, it might sometimes mean that I'll write it or I'll get somebody to write it. Sometimes it'll mean that I'll need a producer or I'll produce it, and then other times I'll need a director or I'll direct it, just to see if I take an idea and make sure it comes out the other side of the project. If you guessed Scotland, congratulations. It was Ideas Scotland 9, recorded and submitted by Ros Steen, our associate editor for Scotland. The subject was born and raised in Johnstone, Renfrewshire, a few miles west of Glasgow. To hear the whole recording, search for Scotland 9 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? Sorry, no points for guessing England, but what region of England? I used to say, our bird has got eyes like pearls and skin like alabaster. <laughs> And uh, then uh, I said, well, when her, her, he'd come home with this future daughter-in-law, this Bert, they said to her one day, what's her like? What's your future daughter-in-law going like? There isn't much to look at, but I've got a beautiful set of teeth. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Dr Joyce Sukumane, the distinguished South African linguist. For more information about her... See the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this month's podcast. Dr. Sukumani, Joyce, thank you so much for joining me. We are going to be talking about African languages. Of course, Africa is a huge continent, hundreds and hundreds of languages. But from your perspective down there in South Africa, and as a, a South African linguist, what would you like people here in the West to know about your part of the world and the languages and the language policy in particular in these post-colonial times i don't know how many percentages of africa was under the british rule but obviously and you know this they had the policy of 
almost like English only, really, because we had to learn English and we function in English and, and nothing else. So the British really did not take much interest in African languages, except needing that to be taught to the natives so they could interpret evangelistic messages. And they learned a little bit of those languages themselves because they needed to preach, but not much else. Because to govern, they wouldn't have thought about that. So now I'm going to talk about my own country, Swaziland, because then we had Siswati and we're a small country. I know it happened in Lesotho and Botswana, maybe Kenya too, the bigger languages in Tanzania, maybe Malawi and Zambia. Not much really going on in terms of a consciousness about the needs of developing these African languages. When we thought we needed to learn a language, at least in in Swaziland, the mother tongue had to be Isizulu. I'm not too sure who had decided we needed that or the system just thought you have to have two languages, your native tongue and your English. But there was not much happening in terms of making sure that Siswati was being studied. The books that we had to read were written in Isizulu, Isizulu grammar, Isizulu literature, because in South Africa, we ended up just learning a language which wasn't even a mother tongue. Mm. And so you find yourself struggling between two languages that are foreign to you. And of course, you have to function. You have to study. You have to do everything else in that. So I'm not too sure what happened in other countries that were under the British rule. And I'm not sure how they got to be conscious of the fact that they needed their own languages developed and taught and learned and functioning in the system of government as well. I'm not sure how they decided that. It's still a raging debate, and you know about that also, the politicization of what languages are we going to use to educate the children. The biggest thing now is the fact that the United Nations had to decide the policy in education to say, this is what you need to do, your grade one to three, teach the children in their mother tongue, introduce English at grade four, phase it in in such a way that by grade six, they're able to study in it and learn in it. Forgive my ignorance, but were these mother tongues universally um, oral? Yes, Paul, there always was what we call the oral literature. There always were your legends, your folk tales, your myths and so forth and so on. They had their own purpose in being told and uh, brought down to generations coming after the older ones. Were they in written form? Was there a written language? Not at the start. And when they were reduced to writing, it's because the missionaries got there. And of course, they had to have the Bible read. And so the history or the historical part of it starts with the missionaries in every, this as a linguist, I studied that in your historical linguistics, you had to understand that that's how our languages began to be written down because the missionaries started the work. Same in uh, Hawaii. I spent some time in Hawaii and 
Of course, their mm-hmm. language, language was never written until Europeans came. Yes, Siswati wasn't written until, in fact, I started teaching in 1976 at a high school somewhere, and that was the first class in my language that was ever taught. It had never been written. So the alphabet and everything we're using, of course, the Roman-based, and we used the Sisulu orthography. Now, from 1976 to now, it's not a long time, with the insistence of the translation of the Bible and the growing awareness and the consciousness about our own mother tongues, people had started to say, well, we need to have our own orthography. And this movement hit the whole of Southern Africa. When the borders were drawn, that started to divide very visibly Lesotho, Swaziland, uh, Mozambique, Botswana, from South Africa. And then there was that. So before, the languages that were studied were sort of written the same way and in terms of the orthography. But then again, I suppose politics kicks in and you have a situation where now with the borders drawn, you have Swazis, for instance, on the South African side, Swazis on the Swaziland side and so forth and so on with Lesotho, Botswana and so and Mozambique that then South Africans would say we need to have our own orthography. And the Swazis would say we have our own orthography. Interestingly, during apartheid, the Africans government did have a program of developing these native languages. During that time, although they were not having much to do with other people outside because they were, you know, into themselves, when it came to languages, they still had a program that when you were developing terminology and all that, you still had to consult the neighboring countries. Mm. And even during apartheid, the work done by the ministries of education in conjunction with um, the universities, we would have a consultative type work going on. Mm. And then this included the development of literatures and, uh, and all that. I can only begin to imagine how a language is changed when it moves from orality to a written form. How did your own language change? It must have changed when it was written down and taught. That's a transition that I can only begin to grasp. Yes, you're right, because in oral literature or your oral space, you are not concerning yourself about standard forms and those become imposed on you once you get to be conscious about how do you write formally or when you write you use formal language when you speak it's all informal obviously it is a change that i haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about how it influences the people who speak it suddenly we've got notions of correctness and and rules come in because with a written language you can impose rules and you can insist on speaking something a certain way because it's written a certain way and people start putting in consonants typically that would be silent in the oral form but that are present in the written form you know one thinks of uh, Shakespeare's character Holofernes Mm -hmm. in Love's Labour's Last who who insisted that we pronounce debt with with the B that's silent debt Debt, and of course Shakespeare has a lot of fun 
mocking that pedantry. <laughs> and I, I, I can only imagine that a lot of that pedantry crept into your own native languages when they became written. Well, not in a general sense, really, because as we speak, the work to develop the languages has pretty much stopped. Mm. But we hadn't come as far as to deciding, for instance, grammatical rules. The orthography is fine. This is just each nation deciding this is how we're going to spell this. So we had to move from spelling the way South Africans in the Sisulu that we studied spell. But we did start with the Zulu spelling writing Siswati. Mm. How were the sounds in those languages that didn't have a, have a European phonetic equivalent? How was it decided to represent the clicks, for example, in, in Osa? At a spelling level, obviously, you spell differently the same sound, depending on your orthographic rules, which you need to keep to, which is, to me, decided politically rather than linguistically. Yes. That's just that. But something that we did not or we have not yet reached is standardized rules in terms of how do you know, for instance, that if you're writing a letter in Siswati, it is formal. How would you recognize formal versus informal? It would not be easy, except for the lexical level, you would know I don't use these words because I don't use such words with my grandma. I don't use such words with my father. I use this with elders, but not in the sense of real fine grammatical rules you would have about how do you do the past tense with these words, the regular, the irregular, you know, those things. And of course, we are talking as if we really could compare the English structure to these languages, which is not quite really the case even, uh, as you would know. That's the part that, as we are talking, I'm wondering if there actually is a need to be prescriptive. If you think about how English has evolved from old English, you know, your Chaucerian, your, you know, to where we are today, to where at this point in time you really don't know now, which is actually British, which is actually American, written or spoken. Somebody told me a joke that when the Queen wants a really well-written letter, she looks for somebody in Australia, I think, <laughs> the Australians most likely still have that, you know, I don't know how true that is, but yes. Hmm. A digression, I would love to hear, it's always fascinating to me to, to hear the translations of the Bible into native languages. I remember when I was getting very interested in Jamaican Patois, to hear that that movement to the literature, of course, was dictated by, as you said, the need to preach, the need to spread the gospel, all of that. Can you recall the 23rd Psalm in your own first language? Could I hear it in that? Oh, Jehovah, Ungumalu Suwami, Angyugwe Saba, Uyangi Holela, Imadli Lunel Shaza, Angi Tobey Kandalami, Ngamafuta, Indebeyami, Achitima, and so on and so on. I love the sound of it. Yeah, and then it happens that from Isisulu to Isiswati, there's not a whole lot of change when it comes to the cliques, but Isiswati 
doesn't have a lot of clicks. So it simplifies all the heavy, complicated clicks in Isikosa, Isizulu, for all of your palatal clicks, your lateral clicks, your guttural clicks. You just make one alveolar click, and everything is or an aspirated version of that. You know, so in my cat runneth over or my cup runs over. Yeah. So, so like what's that. my cup runneth over again in that? In Debeyami, Yakitima. Love that. Let's go back to language policy. I don't know if you heard the podcast I did with Mike Espinosa some months ago, in which he was talking about Spanish language policy here in the United States, but I can only begin to imagine the difficulty of navigating the minefields of language policy uh, in your part of the world. You know, I know that South Africa has 11 official languages. How on earth in a post-colonial era is a reasonable and fair and, and, and just and creative language policy created? How on earth do you, how on earth do you do that? I know you have advised the South African government and I know you've got a paper on Namibian language policy. What an enormously difficult and challenging human endeavor that is. Yes, I retired from the Department of Arts and Culture in 2014. By the time I left in the, the project to promulgate this policy, because this national policy that declared that the B11 official language is now, the plan was that it ends up in some form of legislation. I did that with my team. And so now we have a legislation that was born out of the policy of 11 language, you know, 11 languages. That's sort of set in stone then, is it? Thou shalt have 11 yes. languages, right? Yes. And there's nothing much to do about that because it's a political thing. But the papers that I've written, the idea is that once a government decides Evidently, when you know what's happening in the ground, you also know that they haven't really given it much thought. In South Africa, the ANC must have thought we've been oppressed and uh, our languages were never official. Now they are official. And it has been a struggle, still is a struggle to decide Mm. which languages to use for education. The legislation says every government unit will use the number of languages that exist in a province plus English and Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. And these provinces were divided along the lines of the historical homelands that decided, oh, you Botswana, you'll be over there, the Basutus will over, be over there, the Zulus will go over there, and so on and so on. That's just how it is. So it's geographical, it's political. So it's in that sense. Mm -hmm. You cannot start to talk about fairness because what fairness is there? And But you can see readily the problems that arise when they haven't given the language issue much thought. And in my capacity, you could only deal with certain issues consistent with what you understand to be the ANC policy at a given time. And then you really don't want to rock the boat. You you just flow and you give them what they want. So we do have legislation that 
decides when you're going to a government department, you have the right to be served in your language and da 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 da. But it doesn't go as far as to say, what happens if I go to this department and I don't get the service? Mm-hmm. But it assumes that in every department there will be a language unit that provides the services, but that's difficult to establish even. Mm-hmm. So the language issue, language question, you, you, you start to think that it's not really a serious issue. But when I was in the U.S. with the Spanish, I had also taught a little bit when I was doing my graduate studies. And I had all kinds of students here, including Spanish speaking. Some of them came from other countries other than the U.S., When I was in Canada, I had a similar problem with the French speakers. Some of them really looked down on French, didn't want to associate themselves with French, except in Quebecois, of course. In Quebecois, it's it's, it's quite a a benefit to be a French speaker. Yes. You still have it here in South Africa. You have some Africans or people with an Africans background who do not want to associate themselves with Africans. So now it comes down to maybe people's choices and how they see themselves, their identity. In South Africa, you have the, well, here we call them colors because they're not African, they're not white, but some of them see themselves as African, others see themselves as Africans depending on what their mother tongue was and where they found themselves geographically. I'd like you to spend just a moment on the term colored as it exists in South Africa. As you know, I run the, uh, the International Dialects of English Archive. And when we post samples from South Africa, if the person self-designates as colored, that's the term we always used to use but I was taken to task by African-Americans who, of course, found colored a terrible word. And they took me to task and said, why do you call them, why do you call them colored? That's, that sounds like you've gone back 40 years. So we've, mm-hmm. we've taken to explaining that uh, so-called mm-hmm. colored. So take the term colored as it applies to South Africans and, and tell me what that connotes and what the history of the word is and, and, and how it's used in South African culture. Well, it's a very difficult conversation to have around that because you do not have platforms where the people who have been called colors are talking about themselves. It will be the government that decides, again, from a political angle that that you you no longer call these people colors. They are now Africans, including the Indians. They are no longer Indians. They are now Africans. And maybe the Chinese who used to have the status of the honorary white, they are now Africans, designated black, the status of black for political reasons. And so, but you do not have, or I haven't really come across a lot of platforms that discuss these things outside of, you know, academics, or people just write papers and you never really get responses or anything like that to actually form an opinion uh, to say this is how the this color thing is looked at and i'm not sure now 
what the difference between colored and people of color. Yes. Where you draw the line, where the problem actually is. But having lived in America, I also did have an experience of a people who do not like to be called African-American. Right. You know? John McWhorter um, himself says he has his doubts about African-American as a term. Yeah. But when it's widely accepted, well, up until somebody insists that we, we're no longer doing this, then, but yeah. So in, in South Africa, really, it would have to be a colored person who answers that question satisfactorily. And maybe I even would guess to say they would not be speaking for everybody. So colored is still an official sort of governmental uh, ethnic designation in South Africa? Not really, because they did away now with colored, Uh, with Indian, uh, with Chinese. I understand. And these people are just African and they're black. Okay. So historically, when it was government policy to officially designate certain people as colored, what did that mean, in fact? Well, it just meant that they were an offspring of both black and white, you know, because they came either from a black woman and a a white man or or the other way around. I understand. Mm -hmm. I never was sure. Yeah, yesterday I was watching the news. The lady that's running for presidency, for the presidency together with Biden. Yes. It was said that the mother was Indian and the father was somewhere from the Caribbean. I don't remember. It was Jamaican or something like that. Yes, Jamaican. But they referred to her as African-American. Right. And that's very strange. And I'm thinking... Yes. The, the term rather breaks does, down there. Does, yes. How do people decide how to label these different forms of existence? I don't know. Yes. Maybe we'll work it out one day. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> but yes. Maybe not. Um, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Is there a topic that you had hoped that we would broach that we haven't covered today? Just a little thing related to the language policies, because one of my projects there was developing cross-border language policies. Now the idea was to get this in a bit to unite Africa. But lately there are conversations that are going on, not quite so officially though, except government apparently has bought into languages like Kiswahili that's already being taught at the University of Western Cape uh, in South Africa. That's one of the languages being considered for languages of unification of Africa, the continent. It makes sense because it's spoken widely as a lingua franca. It's not one of the official 11 languages then, Swahili? At the no, moment. it's not because it is the official language of East Africa. Yes. Tanzania, Kenya, and it's spoken in some parts of Africa, Central Africa, a little bit, Zambia, Malawi, Uganda, the Congo. So that's under serious debate as a language of unification of the continent, right? That's where they're going. But I haven't heard anything official about that. But the problem is that the AU 
and what goes on with the governments in Africa will make decisions of this sort uh, and the people are never consulted. It would be interesting to know how they actually think of unifying the continent and what exactly do they mean about unifying the continent. So those are things that at some point in time, as you say, some things we may never figure out. For the regions, some languages have been chosen, and we know now that at least Kiswahili is one of the languages, the official languages of the AU. We were hoping to work towards getting Isuzulu to that level, but me sitting here, and actually I'm, I'm retired, and I do think about these things, but I never have the right platforms to engage except little conversations here and there that have a cultural flair more than the actual real political issue that needs to be maybe if it's planned maybe one day it will be implemented how and so forth so those conversations probably take place at different levels that's a little ironic given the history of language imposition that Africa is now considering imposing a language on people and say, thou shalt speak Swahili. That's yes. interesting. That happened in Tanzania during the reign of Nyerere. It worked. I have an uncle who, with his wife, trained in medicine in Jerusalem. They came back to Swaziland and practiced medicine. And, you know, your drugs are in the language they're in. They're not in Swahili. But now you go back to Tanzania, it's no longer that policy, you know. So it looks like English has got its heels dug in the continent and maybe the world over. I don't know. (laughs) Vexed questions. And as they say, perfection is just in the planning stage, right? (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Well, Dr. Sukumane, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Have a wonderful day there in South Africa, the rest of your day. Thank you, thank you, Paul. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Joyce Sukumane. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. I still have spaces available in my Zoom masterclasses for October and November. Look for details in Zoom Classes with Paul under the Coaching tab on the menu bar of paulmeyer.com. Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com to be added to the mailing list to make sure you get up-to-the-minute announcements of such offerings. My guest in November will be Professor Rush Rem. He holds a joint appointment in Classics and Theatre and Performance Studies at Stanford University. He's Artistic Director of Stanford Repertory Theatre and author of six books on Greek theatre. We'll be doing some time-travelling some historical linguistics. I want to ask Professor Rem what we know about the sound of voice and speech in ancient Greek public oratory and theatre, and perhaps by the average citizen of Athens. Can we do for ancient Greek theatre what historical linguists have done for Shakespeare and reconstruct the language as it was actually spoken in the theatre? Next time on In a Manner of Speaking... 